Good morning. Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Pittsburgh. We're delighted to see all of you here this morning on this holiday weekend. Old friends and new, please be sure to pick up the um, pads, the friendship pads, at the end of your pew and pass them. That way, if there are any people that are new to the church or visiting, we know their name and we can greet them after the service. Thank you. Um, If you wish to talk to a Stephen minister confidentially, the Stephen minister for today, on today's, uh, on duty today, is Teresa Carter. And uh, she will be available in the narthex wearing a special name tag. Uh, Take a look at the bulletin for any upcoming events and additional announcements. Is there anyone who has an announcement today that I'm not aware of? Okay. Please join us for refreshments in the fellowship hall at the end of the worship. And we will begin the service with a prelude. Thank you. Good morning, friends, and happy Fourth of July weekend. Welcome to summer worship service. As we have done in past summers, we will take your hymn requests. And I'm going to kick us off because here we are on the Fourth of July weekend, and how could we resist not singing something patriotic? So why don't we start with my, with my country, Tis of Thee, on page 337. And then you can think about other things that you would like to sing as well. How about we do the first and last? Thanks, Bruce. 337, first and last verse. Of Ages. Let's do first and last verse on that one as well, please. 438, Rock of Ages.
188. Okay, and while we're turning to 188, in case you're wondering, how did they know which songs they wanted and what number it's on? The index, my friends, is on page 1009. It's the very last index in the back. It gives you first lines and common titles. And if you're looking for something like um, Here I Am, Lord, sometimes that is also known as the first verse of the way it starts. So Here I Am, Lord, will be listed twice, both as the way that it starts out, I, the Lord of Sea and Sky. It's also as Here I Am, Lord, because that's the more commonly understood title for it. So you can check in the 1009 index as you make these requests all throughout the summer. But right now, Jesus Loves Me, I think we can do both verses, and we probably can do it from memory. What do you think? better way to start us off this summer Sunday morning, and I invite you to welcome our guest liturgists this morning, both Dan Harrison and Jeanette Henderson. Good morning, everybody. Great to be here. Please join me in the responsive call to worship in your bulletins. To you, I lift up my eyes. You are not like earthly kings. You are merciful to us. You genuinely care about us. You want us to feel as if we're being our king. It's good news to be shared. In all gratitude for God's reign, let us worship God.
Please join me in the prayer of the day. God of abounding grace, we see the profusion of your love and creativity all around. You formed the planets and set them in motion. You called us by name and gave us gifts to fulfill your ministry. For gifts beyond naming and generosity beyond understanding, we praise and worship you. We pray that we might bless others as we are blessed. Now may we be refreshed with spiritual food from your table, be moved by your word, and sustained by your spirit. Please receive our praise and our worship for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We just celebrated yesterday freedom. And that gift, of course, is from God. The gift of free will, the ability to make our own choices. Sometimes our choices are not the ones that are most pleasing to God. And God knows that. And God forgives us, even before we make those poor choices. So with the confidence of the children of God, let us together confess those things in which we might have fallen short as a corporate body using the corporate prayer confession you see printed in your bulletin. O God, our protector, you set us in your holy city, where your saints have always found security and rest amidst the toils of life. As you have been their faithful guardian, so you have held us fast when all around us is shaken. Yet we turn aside from you, worrying about meeting our own needs and depending upon our own strength for security. In your mercy, forgive our failure to trust you. Remind us and strengthen us to cast all our cares upon you. Enable us to live by your spirit under the certain conviction of your abiding love, revealed to us in the gift of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world, that the world might be saved through him. This promise is for us, and for those with whom God empowers us to share it. Friends, believe the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Please be seated. Today's gospel lesson comes from Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. He left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all of this? What is this wisdom that he has been given? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary? The brothers of 
James and Joses and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense with him. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor, except in their own hometown and amongst their kin and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unfaithfulness. Then he went about amongst the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money, He had them wear their sandals and not to put on two tunics. Then he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and cured them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning on this 4th of July weekend. I see that we have some visitors amongst us, and you may not know that our tradition is to welcome children forward. So if you would like to come join us up front, I know the Genekaikuses are here. I know my own kids are here. Come on forward. I'd love to talk to you this morning. Oh, William, it's not that bad, is it? Really? What'd you do yesterday? What'd you do for the fourth? Come on up. You did? Did you do any celebrations? Did your mom make some really good food? Because I know she's a great cook. Mm-hmm. Good morning and welcome. Good to see you, Mr. Prey. Life is good. What did you do for the fourth? It was such a whirlwind, huh? Busy and fun and good things? Yeah? You had an opportunity to play with friends? Welcome, friends. What did you guys do for the fourth? Hmm, thinking about it. Well, there were some neighbors of ours in our cul-de-sac last night who set off some fireworks. And as we were listening to them set off their fireworks, I overheard them give this big groan because one of the fireworks didn't light. It just kind of went... And they said it was a dud. And I thought, you know what? Sometimes there are duds in life. Jesus had a dud of a time trying to work his deeds of power. Did you hear he was going back to Nazareth, to his own hometown? And he did as he was used to. He went into the synagogue and started teaching. But all the people around him started saying, Hey, Olivia, isn't, isn't that little Jesus... You know, the the little kid who skinned his knee? Isn't that just the carpenter's son? Wait a minute. We're not going to believe that he can do anything powerful here. And that's what happened. The text said to us, there were no deeds of power that Jesus could do there. (gasps) But he still was Jesus. I love that reaffirmation. Way to go, Benjamin. So tell me, guys, do you think that we have a role in the healing magnificence and miracles that Jesus plays? Do we have any part in that? Yes. I think we do, too. 
Totally. I think it's really important to recognize that what we start to have as an attitude around Jesus and whether or not we expect the miracles that Jesus can do can change whether or not those deeds of power can actually be done. So what did Jesus do when he was not able to do those deeds of power there? Did you hear how he talked to his disciples? He told them, if you can't make anything happen in the towns and villages that I'm sending you into, just move on. Shake the dust off your feet and go someplace else. Because sometimes the deeds of power that we want to do will turn out as duds. Now, does that mean we give up trying to do those deeds of power? Absolutely not. You might remember the parable of the sower, where the sower, the person who was sending out seeds, kept scattering them on rocky ground, on fertile ground, on ground that wasn't ready to accept those seeds. But the sower just kept sowing those seeds. So even if it feels like what you're sharing of God's good news is turning out to be a dud, keep on. That thing that just goes... Right? Go ahead and keep sowing those seeds and having confidence that the deeds of power will come because Jesus is there to bless them. Just like Mr. Jenikaika said, you're still there, right? Jesus is still there. Well, I want to tell you that today, Mr. Kunkel is still there. He's ready to have a lot of fun with you today. So if you want, you've got lots of choices today. You can either join Mr. Kunkel out in the narthex, and he'll take you for some really fun Christian ed things, or you can stay with your family and enjoy the rest of worship. Your choice, okay? But before you go, we've got to pray together. Can you join hands? There you go, Olivia. God in heaven, we thank you for reminding us that we participate in your deeds of power and give us a sense of how we might keep doing that no matter what we encounter. We pray this all in confidence because we pray it in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen. I think you pray beautifully. Well done. Y'all have a great time with Mr. Kunkel or with your families.
The epistle lesson is from 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 10. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know what such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to repeat. On behalf of such a one, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, For power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. The word of the Lord.
I can't thank you enough for arranging not just our summer songs throughout, but for giving us this tradition of your sharing with us on the 4th of July, you in particular. And Jane and Alan and Jeff, thank you for adding your beautiful four-part harmony to this celebration this morning. I get that impression, and it comes across beautifully. Thank you. Was your celebration wonderful? Are you still recovering from it? Could you use a cup of coffee? My coffee mug is empty this morning, but I brought it because it is my favorite coffee cup mug. It was given to me on my 30th birthday when I was serving at a Curcio, a Via de Cristo weekend. It was the first time I served on the team, and I love it because it shows this frazzled person walking into an espresso bar. And when he gets there, the flavors are love, grace, and joy. And he says, I'll take some grace, make it a double. <laughs> Do you ever have days like that? Where you could use a double shot of grace? When you wake up late, the kids are already clamoring for breakfast. You know that you've got a long day of meetings and no chance for a break. And you've got dinner guests coming to boot. Or do you have one of those days where you're about to show a house and you've got the flyers all out and you get a flat tire on the way to pick up the prospective buyers? Or do you have a day where you visited a loved one and they're not doing well and today their breathing seems a little bit raspier? Or are there days when you can't figure out what God wants you to do with your life? Or you've been praying about somebody you love and they can't figure out what God wants them to do with their life. Are there days when you could stand a double shot of God's grace? Well, the punchline of this cup has become my favorite scripture verse. And Jeanette read it for us beautifully this morning. My grace is sufficient for thee. My grace is sufficient for thee. For God's power is made perfect in weakness. God's grace is enough. You might ask, for what is it enough? God's grace is enough for everything. God's grace is sufficient. We don't need a double shot. With God's grace, each of us can make the world a more grace-filled place. And this world needs more grace. You know, there are nearly 7.3 billion people in this world, and nearly a third of the world's population live in China and India combined alone. 68.6% of this world is not Christian. And by 2050, the Barna Research Group projects that the number of practicing Muslims will equal the number of practicing Christians. In 2013, the poorest 3.5 billion people in the world laid claim to 1% of the world's wealth. At the same time, those 3.5 billion people held 1% of the world's wealth. Only 85 people controlled another 1% of the world's wealth. And at the same time, the richest 1% had more than half of the world's wealth in their pocket. About 795 million people are undernourished globally. And that represents one in three people in developing regions. And only 6.7% of the people in the world have any kind of college or university degree. 
Hezzy, I expect MCC to get on this right away. Well, if this world needs more grace, you know for certain that our nation needs more grace. Nearly 2.5 million American children were homeless at some point in 2013. That amounts to nearly 1 in 30 children being homeless. And perhaps more shockingly, 1 in 4 children in this great nation go to bed hungry. 1 in 4. How do we live with this staggering lack of grace? Why doesn't our Christian conscience clamor more for justice, not just for us? Perhaps you've heard of Dr. Michael Sandel. He's a professor of Harvard, and his wildly popular video video takes on YouTube talk about this concept of justice that's not just for us. In both his video lectures and his book, Sandel engagingly outlines the major political philosophical schools, utilitarianism, libertarianism, Kantianism, and Aristotelianism, and their approaches to justice. So we find that our American church as a whole is clamoring for justice. But what we're doing is doing it in opposition not in collaboration with other faith-based entities or those who would be sympathetic to this end goal of justice. And when we make these arguments in silos, we argue for just us, not justice. Now, I'm going to overgeneralize, and I want you to recognize that I'm going to make four broad categories here, and yes, this is a gross slimming down of the argument, but go with me for a second, and let's see if this makes sense. How do we look at those four different categories that Dr. Sandel lined out? Let's think about some major categories in our own Christian spectrum. Evangelicals are clamoring for a libertarian form of justice. Now, you know libertarianism, as posited by Nozick and Friedman and others. It says that we should have unfettered markets, and it opposes government regulation in the objective of providing total liberty, hence libertarianism, to each person so that each person can own him or herself. Unfortunately, when you take that argument to its extreme, if each person is able to claim complete autonomy, we sacrifice our notions of civic participation, mutual influence, and community building. We cease being the body of Christ and see one another as body parts for sale by each autonomous self. Now, another category on our Christian spectrum, more conservative mainline Christians are clamoring for a more utilitarian form of justice. Utilitarianism is described as achieving the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Unfortunately, this approach has the potential to trample individual human rights. Let's take another big category, progressives. They're clamoring for a Kantian form of justice. Immanuel Kant says justice means giving people what they morally deserve. And in order to determine what people morally deserve, Kant rejects our desires as a basis for our morality. Kant also rejects God as a basis for our morality, although he was a very faithful and practicing Christian. Instead, Kant argues that the supreme principle of morality is the exercise of pure practical reason. The moral worth of an action consists not in the consequences that flow from it, but in the the intention from which the act is done. 
So for Kant, the motive of duty is supreme. And if you remember from your high school or your college philosophy 101, this is Kant's categorical imperative. Unfortunately, Kant's approach assumes that everyone has knowingly agreed to the same social contract, while some other persons may not be gifted in certain skills, there's an assumption that others are. And this tacit consent to this social contract, as John Locke calls it, does not guarantee its fairness. Okay, you've heard me line out three political philosophies and the downsides. Let me give you the fourth. Catholics are clamoring for an Aristotelian form of justice. We know this because in his masterfully comprehensive theological summation, 11th century theologian Thomas Aquinas modernized Aristotelian thought for his age, and that's been handed down through the Roman Catholic Church ever since then. For Aristotle, justice is teleological and honorific. We have to know the telos, which is Greek for goal or right, and the virtue that it honors. Aristotle, to hold something in our brains, says that the ends cannot justify the means. For Aristotle, justice is ultimately about honor, virtue, and the nature of the good life. And, just like the other three categories, it has a downside. Unfortunately, Aristotle could and did use this line of reasoning to justify slavery by arguing that it was both natural and necessary. Okay, that's a whirlwind overview, but I wanted you to see that there are four different ways of looking at justice, and they can be slotted very roughly with four different ways of thinking about our Christianity. All of these highly convicted, Christ-following groups are clamoring for justice one way or another, but they're talking past one another without listening. They're not appreciating or engaging the others to form a stronger approach. Why would such good-intentioned people do that? MIT professor Sherry Turkle says that one of the reasons that we do that is because we expect today more from our technology than we do from one another. She says, we bend to the inanimate with new solicitude. We fear the risks and disappointments of relationships with our fellow humans. How many times do you see out in the coffee shop people not talking to one another but on their phones or playing with their iPads or texting, right? We're much more comfortable because we can, anybody who has access to technology can set up a carefully selected avatar and present themselves in any way they want to the world. While many of us might argue that technology has improved our lives, and it certainly has, Turkle notes, technology helps us manage life's stresses, but it generates anxieties of its own. I don't know about you, but I'm constantly connected to my phone and wondering, what email have I missed? What notification of somebody being in the hospital? It generates its own kind of stress. How can we talk with one another about justice and our plans for doing ministry if we don't even want to be together without being tethered to our electronic devices or shielded behind our carefully constructed online avatars? All right, are you scared yet? Don't panic. The church has actually been here before. Maybe not with this set of technology, but we've been in the midst of enormous and for the time rapid technological changes in confluence with vast shifts in economic and political models. There's a respected authority on religious trends. Dr. Phyllis Trickle, 
identifies that the church is going through, and you penny pinchers will love this, the church is going through a giant rummage sale and does so about every 500 years. The last rummage sale happened during the Great Reformation when Martin Luther King nailed, Martin Luther, excuse me, not Martin Luther King because we sang that marvelous hymn. Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg and he said, we're going to trumpet the importance of sola scriptura as the answer to humanity's questioning the ultimate source of authority. 500 years prior to Martin Luther, the Great Schism divided Eastern and Western churches as the Patriarch of Constantinople and the Pope of Rome excommunicated one another, and the debate raged over the nature of what the Holy Spirit was. Half a millennium prior to that, Gregory the Great ascended the throne, and the monastic tradition gained traction with Benedict's rule as its progenitor. And 500 years prior to that, of course, we're back to the disciples themselves and Jesus Christ living the way, the truth, and the life. All of these great shifts were accompanied by tectonic shifts in culture. And while those shifts were threatening at the time, they produced ultimately, as history shows us, and we can look back with a little bit of confidence, a much greater spread of Christianity that could, have, could not have been seen by the people who were living in that great rummage sale at the time. So take some comfort, friends. Know that we have been here before. These technological, these economic and political shifts bring about these predictable phases where you try to figure out what this new church is going to look like. Tickle calls our rummage sale right now the great emergence. And while we're going through this wilderness wandering, we can call upon and share God's grace, knowing it's sufficient particularly if we don't give in to the temptation to water it down in any way or take its dynamic power from it. Episcopal Bishop Michael Marshall says we have bought into decaffeinated Christianity, a Christianity that is guaranteed not to keep you awake at night. Decaffeinated Christianity has no concern for the poor or those who are in bondage, captivity, or in any way oppressed or different from those who are in power. Decaffeinated Christianity is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. And I know many of you have studied this. Decaffeinated Christianity is what my Princeton professor, Kendra Creasy Dean, calls, ready for this, moralistic therapeutic deism. That'll knock your socks off, won't it? Moralistic therapeutic deism is this well-intentioned but ultimately ineffective version of Christianity that's currently being offered up in a lot of our churches. It's a sort of don't ask, don't tell Christianity that asks nothing of the disciple and tells nothing of God's sacrificial giving to those around the world. Decaffeinated Christianity is anathema to Jesus Christ. But wait a minute. Didn't I say a moment ago that God's grace is sufficient? Yep, I did. But here's where the caffeine kicks in. Listen to the rest of the verse. For God's power is made perfect in weakness. What's that mean for us today? God's power is made perfect in weakness. Well, what is power? Power in Greek is dunamis, from which we get the word dynamic. What's perfect? 
Telos, the Greek word for end or goal. What's weakness? The weakness of humanity is contrasted with the dynamism of God. So, put that all together, God's power finds its end or goal in our humanity. We are that transforming agent. And in our gospel text this morning, Jesus leaves Capernaum and walks back into his hometown of Nazareth. He leaves the Sea of Galilee and walks right into a sea of humanity. This should be an ideal opportunity for him to work his miracles, bringing people to wholeness through repentance and helping them to be all the good things that God has created them to be. It should be a perfect opportunity. But it isn't. What did they do? They called him illegitimate. They bumped him along and said, eh, this is just the little boy that we knew. In his hometown synagogue, they're not open to any of his deeds of power. God's power couldn't meet its goal with this batch of unbelieving humanity. So what does Jesus do? (laughs) Well, if he were a toddler or a teenager, he'd throw a temper tantrum, right? But no, he very calmly said, he gathered together the rest of his disciples, and he taught them. There were two things that they needed to do. He taught them to leave and go teach in other villages. He caught them with a gift and a command. He gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit to cast out unclean spirits. What does it mean by unclean spirits? Well, the Greek word there is akathero, and it literally means to prune. So if you remember in the gospel from John 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine and We are the branches. God is pruning everything that is old or dead or not effectively communicating from us. And that's what Jesus tells the disciples to do. Go out, cast out those unclean spirits, prune carefully so that the real flowering of God's great gifts can come to bear. The second thing that Jesus tells his two-by-two disciples as he sends them out is to adapt to the circumstances that they're going to face. They, like him, are going to run into people who don't believe that they can do deeds of power. And disciples of every day and age have to be ready and flexible to cope with this. And one of the ways that we can do that is to understand that everybody looks at justice a little bit differently. We may not realize it, but somehow or another, we've got this breakdown, one way or the other, looking at it through an Aristotelian lens, a Kantian lens, a utilitarian lens, or a libertarian lens. We all think of justice a little bit differently, as long as we don't get thinking about justice as just us. All disciples have to shake their dust off their feet if they aren't accepted just like Jesus did when leaving Nazareth. Others are waiting for the gospel. And we can't be tempted to give the world a cup of decaffeinated Christianity because that's the feel-good thing or that's the thing that's going to be accepted. This world needs the real thing. This world needs God's grace. And God's grace isn't cheap grace. God's grace is sufficient for us all. For God's power meets its goal, its end, in our humanity. So the next time you're feeling as if you could use a double shot 
of caffeinated Christianity, I encourage you not to belly up to an espresso bar, but to cozy up to the communion table. Avail yourself of God's grace. As a matter of fact, friends, can I share with you a cup of caffeinated Christianity? Recognizing that God's grace is sufficient for all our needs, let us with gratitude in our hearts offer up those gifts which we have from God to give back to God. And I invite you to join Jeanette in our offertory prayer. Please join me in the prayer of the day. Oh, no, the wrong one. (laughs) In the offertory prayer. O God, we seek the transformation of the world, but we fear the change it could bring to our own lives. Grant us the trust and courage to acknowledge your great reign among us. Take these gifts as symbols of our desire to genuinely love our neighbors as ourselves. May they be used to build a better world where your love and salvation are known by all. Amen. Jesus said, Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Not only does God give us rest, but God sustains us and gives us the grace necessary to carry on. Recognizing God's great gift, we are welcomed to this table, all who put their trust and faith in our Lord and Savior. So come, for all is ready. Friends, please join me in prayer. Gracious and loving God, 
Here at the table, all who profess their faith in Christ are welcome. And so we praise you that in Christ we became your children, baptized into your service. Remembering all your mighty and merciful acts, we take this bread and this wine from the gifts that you have given us, and we celebrate with joy the redemption won for us in Jesus Christ. We ask that you would accept this, our service of praise and thanksgiving, as a living and holy offering of ourselves, that our lives might proclaim the one crucified and risen. And we ask that you would help us to live lives looking for and finding your grace all around the world. Amen. We give you thanks, Lord God, that on the night of his arrest, our Lord and Savior took a simple loaf of bread. And after he had given thanks to God for it, he broke it. And he gave it to each and every one of his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In gratitude and obedience, we do.
And in much the same way, after the supper, our Lord and Savior took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And he added, every time that we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we do proclaim our Lord's saving death until he comes again. My friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God.
Friends, we have a number of prayer requests this morning. I want to start off by thanking Diana Adams for the lovely flowers behind me. And yes, there is blue in there. Take a look a little closer. Red, white, and blue. Honoring those who have served our nation. And we give thanks and praise for those who give the ultimate sacrifice. We also are thankful for those that have celebrations. John Scahill, it's so much fun to see you here, having recently graduated from high school and looking forward to starting at MCC in the fall. Thank you very much for your service with our ARC friends. And I have good news about our ARC friend, Judy Lewis, about whom we've been praying for several months. You know she was in and out of the hospital, in and out of ICU, in and out of um, needing sustaining uh, intervention for her breathing. She's back home at the Penfield ARC, and she is able to get around with the assistance of a wheelchair, and we're hoping that very soon she'll be back in worship with us because I can't think of a Sunday that Judy would have missed. What do you think about that, Kathy? Will it be nice to have Judy back? Yes, very much so. We're looking forward to that. We also give thanks and praise that a wedding took place this weekend. I had the delight and privilege of officiating for Lindsay Copeland and Laura McAllister this weekend down at Canisius Lake. And we give thanks and praise for a wedding that happened a few weeks ago, and Paul and Patricia Irving are here with us today. Congratulations and welcome. We also are in prayer for our Jazzy Mission team that arrived safely, and they're setting up and getting ready for our campers, 120 of them coming tomorrow on buses. We're very excited for them. At the very same time that we give thanks for our Jazzy Mission team, and as we're praying for all of them, we're also in prayers of gratitude for Joelle Truax, our Director of Youth Ministry. Many of you might have seen that she has answered God's call to move on to another opportunity She's going to be going down to Guatemala, where she had served earlier this year. She's going to language camp in late August. And because of that, we will be open to God's calling a new director of youth ministry. So please be in prayer for that. If you have ideas for a new director of youth ministry, or you want to serve on that search team, please talk to either Ed Johnson or Betty Wells, who are co-chairs of our Christian Ed team, or with Craig Kunkel, or with Louise Thompson, and um, Jennifer Lake, who have agreed to co-chair the search team. We're also in prayer for those who need healing today. So, Lisa Hughes, we're in prayer for your mom, and may she find that this surgery on Tuesday for cancer of the liver is entirely successful and that the recovery is one without complication. And Muriel Nothard, we're in prayer for your daughter, who was recently diagnosed with pneumonia, May she, too, find that the antibiotics are working wonders and that she's soon out of the hospital. Dan Dupre, who is serving as our deacon this morning, our greeter this morning, is going to have surgery on Tuesday. Dan, we're with you and with the surgeons and hopeful that that will be completely successful and, again, without complication. And, friends, I would ask you to be in prayer for Liz Mahalso's family. You know that many of us have been praying for her brother and her nephew, both of whom needed and successfully had heart transfers. Well, unfortunately, Liz Mahalso's brother passed away yesterday, and they're trying to make arrangements, but do be in prayer for Liz and for her family. Friends, there is so much in this world for which we might give thanks and praise, and we recognize that God's grace is sufficient for each one of us. With that confidence, please join me in prayer. Lord God, we give thanks that in you we can truly be servants. In Christ, you have shown us how to serve our neighbors, 
to carry with us the towel and basin of hospitality, to empty ourselves of superficial vanity, and giving ourselves an awareness of the responsibility of being chosen. And so we go forth with thanksgiving for our baptism, cozied up to the communion table for the grace that's sufficient, seeking to follow the Spirit who guides us and your kingdom, which reigns over all. By your Spirit, unite us with the living Christ who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Friends, please join me in singing the first and the last verse of This Is My Song, page 340. First and last verse. God's grace is sufficient. Go and share a cup of caffeinated Christianity with those around us. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be and abide with each and every one of us this day and forevermore. Amen. Amen.